So if you look at your strategy and it's not clear how it solves the problem for your customer, but you think somehow, the somehow isn't sufficient. If it's not clear, your strategy's wrong. Welcome everybody to the Stop Decorating the Fish podcast. This is episode 15. I'm your co-host, Randy Cox, and across from me is my wife, Kristen. How are you? Doing great. So we're, we're talking today about these seven indicators that would let you know whether or not you have a good strategic plan. Yes, exactly. And we'll go through each one at a time, and at the end you can find a downloadable worksheet that has all of the indicators laid out for you on jointhefulcrum.com, our private online place where we put in more long-form content because we, you may be driving or doing other things and you can't take notes on all this. So just don't worry about it. You can download it later. Before we did that, I thought we maybe you were going to talk about... What? Well, we, we put a post out on LinkedIn and we got a lot of engagement on it. And we, we were talking about... Sometimes we have a problem with the nature of our problem, that we have a problem with operations and we try to solve it with more policy or new strategy, or we actually have a policy, a problem with our strategy or our policy, but then we try to fix it in operations. And if we can't distinguish if we have an operations problem or a strategy problem, we can get really tangled up, spend a lot of time and effort because we've misdiagnosed the problem and we make things worse. So we thought today we'd again talk about just some ways you can look at is your strategy do you have the right strategy in place maybe something's wrong with your strategy and give you some things to think about so now strategy for us is a little different from other people i've I've talked about this before i would love if we could take out the idea of a strategic plan and talk about a complete solution but in the meantime the way we think about strategy is just the direction of a solution it's just directional it's like we're going to go on vacation somewhere on the East Coast, but there's still a lot of details to work out in execution of that. So we can start at least with, do we have the right direction? How do we know if we do or we don't? But also like direction of a solution to what? To, yeah. to, and there has That's to be a problem. Yeah, right? exactly. If you have a solution, you have to have a problem. And a couple of years ago, when I was up in the governor's office, I had my team do research on a bunch of different strategic plans, local government, private sector, federal government, state government, just to see if my assumption was right. And of all the plans we looked at, only 15% actually had a problem statement they were trying to fix. And of that 15%, in my perspective, the way I think about setting up or framing the problem, only half of the 15%, so a little over 7%, but we'll just say 7% of those plans really had a clarity on the problem that you're trying to solve. So that's a problem because we don't know the problem. So again, we'll talk today. Am I getting close? Is my strategy on the right track or not? All right, very good. The first one here though is I think the most common and one of the most common ones that I see people getting confused around with strategy. And that's the idea of compensation or counteracting. We wrote about this a little bit in our book, The World of Fish Decorating, that goes a little deeper into this stuff. But essentially, we're dealing with the effects of the system. We're not changing the system itself. So we don't have enough jobs, so we incentivize more jobs. We uh, have people who don't have housing, so we build out more housing. We're like a catcher's mitt. The system is creating some stuff that isn't working well, and we're just a catcher's mitt trying to catch it on the back end and counteract. And 
we know for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction. So when we try to fight fire with fire, we see marginal progress. So let's take um, the idea of jobs in rural parts of the country, right? Until actually the pandemic where remote work actually created some opportunities. But still, parts of the country and rural parts of the country, there's a struggle. And we can try to incentivize and beg people to come by throwing money at them. But there's two problems with that. One, everyone can do that, right? So if you're competing off of what everyone else can do, you really don't have a unique value proposition that allows you to have a real unique competitive advantage. The real question is, what do I fundamentally change in the system to create jobs? So rural parts of the country, how do I leverage an asset that I already have that's really, really good that I can expand. So there's a great example of this in Utah, rural parts of Utah in southern Utah. Some folks with a critical mass of some great artistic ability and concepts at a university. They grew it and created a Shakespearean festival, which has now become a huge tourist attraction from across the state and other parts of the country flock to this time of year when they have these Shakespearean festivals. So how do you leverage an asset you already have? And when we don't, let's take um, homelessness, for example, you can't build your way out of it. You just simply can't build your way out of it. You set up a, ha- a permanent supportive housing unit. I'm not saying you don't need those, right? I'm not saying to go away from those, but let's say you set that up and now you've got more people coming to your area because they've got housing options. So now you're almost pulling demand and you can't pace with it. Is it like roads? Like yeah, like roads, and we create induced congestion. That's a great example. So there's traffic out there, and we think, oh, we need more roads. We need more roads, so we build more roads. So we build more roads, and what happens? You'll see as soon as the new roads are built, they just fill up because what they're doing is usually pacing with expected growth, or they're allowing for growth because they're creating uh, arterial roads into areas where you can now have development. So when you're just trying to fight fire with fire, we have congestion, build more roads. It's called induced congestion. You actually create more congestion. So it's much more difficult to say, how do I actually remove the need for transportation in the first place? If traffic is a way of life, no matter how much I build out of it, what else could I do? Can I create more human scale neighborhoods that reduces the pressure for walking? What do I do with my um, investments in road to diversify so I have more public transportation? How do I create a culture where we can have more remote work? I'm not saying you have to take on any of those ideas, but when you understand that you're just counteracting, I have traffic, so I build more roads. So what I end up doing is creating more traffic, and I don't really solve the problem. I'm just dealing with the effects of it. So this one's really common. Counteracting is the first one to say, is my solution, does my solution or my strategy mirror the problem? Is it just the opposite of the problem? Need more jobs, incentivize jobs. People are homeless, build more housing. We see it all the time, even with turnover issues. We'll say, geez, people, we have high turnover, so we need just to create, keep increasing wages. Okay, that's great to a point, but eventually your your CFO or your budget's going to cap out and say, we can't keep doing that. So the bigger question is, why is there high turnover? What's going on in the workplace that's creating that high turnover? And you could see your offering is wrong. Maybe you could be more creative in allowing for part-time versus full-time. Maybe the conditions are tough and you're forcing forced overtime, which isn't sustainable, so you've got to deal with your operations. So there's a lot of things that this shows up everywhere. It's also important, I think, to see that, like, sometimes in TOC we say there's certain types of things you can solve, even when it doesn't seem like it's solvable. But then there's other things like this, like with traffic, that are just a hamster wheel. 
Yes. And it's important to see like, okay, you could work and work and work and work, mm-hmm. and you, but you are going to be a year from now, and you're going to have, let's say you have all this housing or all these roads, mm-hmm. and you're going to be still in the same situation. Yeah. So it's important to understand the nature of it's really, yeah, the it's problem really important Because with. we do believe all problems can be solved, but that's a little misleading because some things are a fact of life. And if you look outside and you wish it were uh, sunny day and it's raining you're just going to be really frustrated but what what you could do is bring an umbrella with you right so it's understanding the nature of the problem so you know where to spend your time and energy all right let's jump into the second one we know what problem we're solving and it's not for ourselves so i've talked a lot about the primary customer and the primary customer's primary need our strategy should be about removing a significant limitation for our primary customer it's not about us We'll see organizations, private sector, it's about about increasing earnings per share or it's increasing market share. And those are all important things. You know, those are, you've got to be profitable to survive. But if you don't have a value proposition or product or service that actually really, really makes a difference for your customer, you're not going to be able to get those gains in performance. Uh, In government, we'll see this a lot. We'll see uh, strategies that uh, one case study I use a lot is a, a initiative from the federal government to reorganize the Department of Labor and the Department of Education. And it was all so inward focused, what that strategy will enable them to do. It allows them to coordinate. It allows them to better connect, which is fine. Maybe there's some legitimate reasons why that needs to happen, although I never jumped to reorganization. No clarity there on who's the primary customer. Is it a laid off worker? Okay, if that's the case, if it's a certain type of worker who's been laid off, what's their problem? Really, and, and just saying lack of training, et cetera, and all the same stuff they say time and time again isn't sufficient. What's the real problem that we're trying to solve for this person? I can give you my experience in blindness. All the federal changes, more case management systems, more research, more policy, 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 more legislation. None of those really dealt with my most important problem, limitation to remove, right? Which is to really have the right mindset for blindness and to ensure that I have the right skills. Now, even with that, there's some other challenges that go on the workforce, but put yourself in your customer's shoes, private sector, public sector, nonprofit, it doesn't matter. Put yourself in your customer's shoes and look at your current strategy and ask yourself if you were that, you're, you were the customer, would that strategy mean anything to you? Does that connect to you at all with what's really going on in your life? And we are so disconnected from the outside of this that we build an entire system and entire execution operation strategy to do something that doesn't really matter for people. I think they think there's a trickle down effect. Like if we fixed our shop, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think you're right. There's this belief. Sometimes there's this long chain of causality, or there's an implicit belief, or people are good. The intention is right that somehow if I reorg, it'll coordinate better services. That somehow, right? So if you're in this, if you look at your strategy, and it's not clear how it solves the problem for your customer, but you think somehow, the somehow isn't sufficient. So if you've got to use, if the word somehow is anywhere, my, if I implement the strategy somehow, it will solve the problem for the customer and it's not clear, your strategy's wrong. Okay, the third indicator is a really interesting one. Let's spend some time on that. Your strategy solves a big problem from your perspective, but it just shifts it off 
to somebody else, to another customer group. Uh, so I can have a strategy, I've seen this, that goes to another indicator, is it's uh, to in- expand my workforce, right? I may feel like I can't keep up with the pace of work that's going on, so I need to expand the workforce. In order to do that, though, I've got to go to my boss and get more money. So now what I've done is I've created a problem for somebody else. The budget director, which you know that used to be me, or the CFO of your company, and now you're getting what you need, but you're causing a problem for somebody else. We saw this a lot in the pandemic, right? We're going to shut down the economy, and we're going to keep people at home, shelter in place for long periods of time. And that just shifted the problem too. We saw spikes in domestic violence, child abuse, educational attainment slipped, and we saw people losing their businesses. So it just shifted problems in other ways. Again, people are well-intended. But uh, in TOC, we talk about holistic solutions, right? Holistic means I'm, I can think about non-dualist solutions. I can. How do I have a solution that solves, for example, reduces the spread of the virus at the time while also protecting people's livelihoods, reducing domestic abuse. That's a higher level of thinking. We posted on this not too long ago. It's not if this or that, but it's both. And your strategy right. needs to solve for both. You're not just shifting it, getting what you want, and then making it worse for everyone else. But it, it, if you were the leader and you see that, that is a clear indication that that person is not thinking at the system level. Correct. They're thinking about their shop. Their piece of it. And yeah. so they're like, well, I know this would, I, my goal is to solve my problem. Mm-hmm. And I know this would solve my problem. Therefore, I'm done. Yeah. Not, well, I have we, to solve a problem and it has to work for the entire system. Like, Right. You. That, that's the, the goal of the holistic thinking or systems thinking. We're not fixing parts, but the whole thing, it's harder. It's a higher level of thinking. Another example is, you know, tourism, we'll see uh, big marketing campaigns to increase tourism in different parts. We saw this in Utah. And it was very successful. I'm not banging the people, brilliant marketing people. But what it did, it just flooded those areas. Just those clobbered local communities them, yeah. clobbered them. So now they don't have the infrastructure to pace with tourism. It's putting pressure on their infrastructure, their roads, their medical, their emergency responders. And they're not seeing the revenue that's sufficient to pace with that. So now they just shifted the problem. Uh, So we really need to understand about the system, holistic solutions, if or thinking isn't sufficient. The other side, think, you know, Democrats, Republicans, think on the other side. Okay, I take healthcare. I expand healthcare so everybody has access. Okay, that's great because we need people, there's people out there that really need access to healthcare. But on the other hand, I could do that and just blow the budget out of the water, which is, Seeing, we're seeing that in Medicaid. It yeah, healthcare can easily do that. Yeah. So the question is not one or the other. It's how do I expand healthcare and stay in budget? That puts boundaries around our solution. We'll talk about that in a later indicator. But we need to think from the other position. What would the other position say about what we're doing? And instead of getting emotional and triggered and they're just wrong, what legitimate issue do they have that I may not be considering in my solution? And it's, again, it's more emotionally challenging and intellectually challenging. All right, let's jump into the fourth indicator, if you have good or bad strategy. We don't understand the negative consequences of our solution. And it's somewhat connected to this one we just talked about, shifting the problem. But there could be what we call in the theory of constraints world, a negative branch, something bad that could happen 
So let's use a private sector example here. It's, there's some really good case studies on this about IBM. There's a time when IBM was, you know, 60s, 70s, one of the, the top, I think, second top biggest company on the planet. And they made a strategic decision that was one very inward focus. It was all about earnings per share. How do we increase our own revenue and profit? And at the time, they were doing a lot of investment in research and development, more than Intel, more than their competition, more than Microsoft. So they were really always trying to find new ways to provide value for their customer base. And their shifting their strategy and shifting and looking more at earnings per share forced them to really think about cost cutting. So they outsourced a lot of their work and then they started to reduce their investment in research and development. Well, you know, hindsight's 2020, but as you listen to this, can you imagine what happens if you make a strategic decision to re significantly reduce your investment in research and development? What could happen over time? And what happened was what you can guess. With that reduction, they became less competitive. They did moved more into services like body shop stuff but they weren't bringing new innovative products to the market. And over time, they actually lost their competitive advantage. I think they're now 54th or 64th largest company in the world. And we looked at it from a 10 year period, I think 2010 to 2020, when you looked at their performance on this, in terms of shares, they totally did not perform like they should have. I think they were half the earnings that was happening with, their, with similar companies in that bracket. So they actually became less profitable less innovative and less of a player. Now, I, I'm not saying that's not gonna change and I'm not saying there weren't some exceptions with some of their product lines, but overall, they really suffered because they didn't think downstream. If I make this decision today, what could happen two, three, four years, six months down the road, a negative consequence that I don't want? We don't often wanna think about that. We love our idea, we're in love with our idea. We have to have the emotional maturity to step back and say, what could go wrong downstream if I were to do this. All right, time for number five, the fifth indicator. This is you don't over detail your strategy. And you've touched on this in a prior episode that we have a fascination with when if you're an analyst, you're in the data world, like how much can we how much information can we amass about the problem, but it doesn't necessarily like lead to a solution. And sometimes leaders can get an a uh, overconfident with their ability to create a solution simply because they can just have so much information about the problem itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very common. I'm sure all, and if you're listening, you've probably seen a strategic plan that's like 20, 30, 40, 50 pages long with lots of graphs and lots of data points, but not very much insight. And so we, we overanalyze the problem. And the problem at the strategic level really should be you know, a couple sentences or a paragraph, which is the problem, and a couple sentences or paragraph for the solution. What we're looking for is clarity, not quantity. And if your strategic plan isn't really clear, now let's take homelessness, right? A big issue in our country right now. And I've I've looked at some some states' plans on this across the country. And what I've seen is just lots and lots of data about the homelessness situation kind of almost validating, which is good, you're validating that this is actually a problem. How many people are homeless? Where are they coming from? What's their demographic? The trend is that it's increasing and getting worse. Maybe information about the type of drugs that are you know contributing to the uh, drug addiction issue, but not any insight. 
right? So again, put yourself in the, and by the way, we, we sometimes can even treat the whole homeless population the same. Sometimes the data will try to segment that out. But even if I took my whole homeless population and I could segment out a, pop, a portion of that group, and I'm looking at the people that have addiction issues and mental health issues, right? They, t- they tend to be chronically homeless, a lot of challenges. All we do is seem to put more data about that, but we don't get clear on what's the limitation we need to remove for those people. They'll say, okay, we need more treatment for them. Obvious, right? <laughs> when your data is just speaking the obvious, there's no insight. If that's true and people need treatment and what we call dosage intensity of intervention, the question is why isn't that happening, right? We often talk about what we want people to do and lots of data about what we want them to do. But just because we say they can't, should do it, doesn't mean they can do it. So the question is, why can't they do the thing that we think is the right thing to do? That gets deeper into the deeper problem to solve. And then how do we go about solving that? Just speaking more of the obvious, more data, different shades of data to tell us what we already kind of know. Let's jump into the sixth indicator to help us evaluate if our strategy is viable or not. How do you know if your strategy is the right one? And all of these indicators kind of play off on each other, but we talked earlier about shifting the problem. So going back to our healthcare example, if my solution is viable and it really can scale and it can really make an impact, it must stay within a reasonable budget and it must also expand healthcare to more people and are there other what we call success criteria or way to evaluate if your solution is viable we talk about this in lots of agencies that like to centralize their it shops right everyone wants to centralize so you centralize so you can get good economies of scale and that you can have good security protocols to make sure your systems are really strong against breaching. But the other side of that argument of why people don't want to centralize is they don't want to lose flexibility or being the ability to be nimble. They don't want to step through many levels of the, the traditional project management office, PMO office, which is all about forms and stra- standards. And it feels like a lot of overhead for people to go through that. So if I'm really going to centralize I've got to be available to evaluate my strategy and say, look, first of all, who's the primary customer? How does centralized sol- centralization solve that for them? So I'm not even saying centralization is the right strategy. I'm just using it as an example because I think it's missed some of the previous steps that makes centralization maybe not the right solution. But if I were to move in that mode, I, my, my strategy would have to help me both have really good security economies of scale where it makes sense, but also very flexible and nimble and fast, right? Speed so that people aren't waiting on the PMO or waiting on stuff to get done. And if I can create a strategy that meets those criteria, fantastic, great, go for it. But if I can't, then I could be making things a bit worse. So it helps us make sure we're not shifting the problem. It helps us avoid negative consequences, but we want to actually write out what those criteria will be. And I always encourage people when you're really changing your direction, which is strategy, your direction or your solution, it really disrupts operations. You you have to maybe change what happens in operations in private sector as well, your supply chain and all that stuff. So it can be disruptive. So we want to take the time to make sure our strategy is really going to make an impact. Sometimes we say, look, you can get a lot of benefit just changing your operations. We often just start in operations because they're so much untapped potential people 
or surprised of how much they can get done there without even having to change their strategy. So take the time and develop, how would I evaluate if my strategy is the right one? I can't just have an idea, right? You just don't have an idea. I'm going to just build a house. There's some criteria there. Oh, I have a budget I have to live within. There's a certain type of neighborhood I want to live in, right? There's great schools I need to near be near for my kids. Whatever those you have inherently, intuitively in our day-to-day lives, we use criteria to evaluate stuff, but not always in our strategy. But it's also a scorecard of a leader, though. So there's like I've I've seen you go into situations where it's they're at the tail end, you know, like three four months prior, they had a problem. The leader launched an initiative. They change a lot of stuff there's a lot of disruption in the organization and nothing like the problem is still there four or five months later and it's not like we go back with a scorecard and say i actually stood up in front of you and said if we just did this and this we will solve this problem and the problem is still here that usually doesn't happen it's just we're going to launch a new initiative Mm -hmm. we're going to kind of not talk about the last one so much we're just Mm -hmm. going to let it fade away and we're going to launch a new one, and this one should do it. Yeah, look, I mean, I've been guilty of that. You're you're busy. You're you see that it didn't work. You've got to change and go. You know, move forward. The older I get, though, the more I appreciate the need to slow down a bit and step back and say, why did not the last one work? Not about shaming or judging or criticizing, but about learning and growing. Right? We can get very defensive and protective in our lives, and the growth happens when we can step into that space that feels. Right. A little vulnerable, right? Like maybe I didn't get it right. Right. And I need to go back and learn from that. And I've learned in my career some really good lessons from my failures. And we talk about it all the time. We'll have a podcast just on the emotional maturity required to do this work. But that's the key one. Right. Finally, we're at the last indicator. This one is you're, you're mistaking the means with the ends. Mm. And there's a closely related idea in here where I think you call it tool collecting. Mm-hmm. where some leaders think their job is to just how many approaches and frameworks and things can I expose myself to and how can, can mm-hmm. I create my own unique amalgam of all of that? Yeah, I, we very common examples of this will be, you know, we'll see a strategy to modernize our IT systems or to go digital and digitize or to go agile or to adopt a new evidence-based model that we think is going to work maybe in the social services arena. We see this a lot and what we can think that's a strategy, but there's a couple of problems with that. One, it's a means to an end. So very often we'll see a strategy move forward again without having that criteria in place. If I, if I implement this strategy, what problem am I solving for the customer? So let's talk modernization, very common in the IT field. What what limitation does that remove from my primary customer if I modernize my systems? It's so disconnected. But let's say modernization is a tactic. You have to do it for, for whatever reason. The big question is, how do I know that that actually achieved anything? What's the result I want to get out of this modernization? Let's say I go agile, right? Very common. Great. I'm, I mean, I've literally seen strategic plans where they talk about going agile. That's fine, but what do I get out of that? How is Agile helping me? And they can say speed to implementation. Okay, great, then evaluate it. Tell me the problem you're removing. What, let's say you're implementing a new uh, case management system, you're gonna use an Agile approach for that. So when you're all done with that, tell me the result you get for your primary customer. 
it's like the direction of you, you say the direction of a solution but it's like a lot of strategic plans are just the direction uh-huh and they leave the solution part out. Like yeah, we're the gonna, assumption is like, well, duh, we just well, need duh, to modernize. We're just, yeah, we're just gonna we're gonna be more data driven. We're gonna be yeah. agile. We're gonna f- so so that you can do what, right? Yeah. Like they leave that part out sometimes. Exactly. And if you can if you can pause for a second, look at the tool and say, look, modernization is is important. But what's the context in which I'm going to modernize? Maybe I prioritize where I'm going to modernize first, based off pressing needs for my customer. And then I could modernize, and while I'm in there doing modernization for a key part of my business, I focus that on a big value proposition I could offer my customer. And while I'm modernizing and I'm in the code and I'm mucking around with stuff, I could actually start fixing things that lead to a value proposition that makes me more competitive in the market. So when we're tool collectors, we don't have context, right? We don't know how to prioritize. Okay, I go agile. I go agile everywhere. Is there one of my IT projects I should focus on? And what should that IT project be doing? What's the limitation it's removing for the customer? So, you know, I have a new evidence-based model. We see this in child welfare, implement protective factors, right? It's a, it's a buzzword out there in a lot of places, even though in operations it, it's not done incredibly well. All right, so I implement protective factors. That's a, that's a great tool, but tell me the result you're going to get from that. Are you going to reduce foster care placements by 25% over the next few years? Like if it's a tool you really, really believe in, you better put yourself on the line about the result you want to get by implementing that tool. The tool, the means isn't sufficient, right? And it doesn't, by the way, even address, we're not even sure of the problem. We're so, we so believe in our heads, it's obvious. We just go off this implicit belief but I'm all about making the implicit explicit. If you think this new evidence-based model protective factors is gonna work in the child welfare system, which is great, tell me the specific limitation that's removing for your primary customer, your strategic customer, why can't that happen today, and what's the result you wanna get out of it, so. And that's actually the advantage of, of, of an outside perspective sometimes because you've I've seen you go into scenarios where they're very confident that they have this under control mm-hmm. and you walk in, but they have, they have all of these implicit assumptions, right? That they don't realize, but they're so confident about it. Then you come in from the outside, you don't have any of that information. And so you start asking some basic questions and all of a sudden there are some holes, some big holes. Oh, look, my, when you're in your own world, it's hard to see it, right? It's easier for me to sometimes see other people's systems and issues than to see my own. Richard Feynman, who's just like the brilliant man that taught the world to think and, and how to approach science, he had a great quote. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, the number one rule of science is not to fool people, and the easiest person to fool is ourself. And I think that is so true in strategy. I like that. And I, I, we can collect all the tools and have all the frameworks, and we feel like we're following the latest cool trend, but we're still not grounded in what's the problem we're solving for the customer. And until you can clearly verbalize that, it, we will struggle and our strategy will go off. And then if our strategy's off and we operationalize a poorly defined strategy, now we've hardwired a poorly defined idea into the day-to-day work, which becomes incredibly expensive and dysfunctional. So hopefully these indicators give you something to think about. You can tell a little bit what we'll have on the fulcrum for people. Yeah, we're going to take this, this podcast and we'll, we'll put these items 
into a nice checklist inside of the Fulcrum. The Fulcrum is Kristen's private online training community. It's also the repository for her longer form content, the stuff that's a little bit too long to put out on, on say, LinkedIn or social media. And you can get to that and review that, see if you want to join by going to www.jointhefulcrum.com. It's free to join. And so we'll have that up there as well as a reference to go back to that you could have this out on your desk when you're preparing your own strategy or reviewing your own strategy. And we, we do not have this ready yet, but in the works, we actually do have a an online course about the two-page strategic plan that we're, we're working on. It won't be out for a, for a little while, but that'll also be a great resource. It'll be an online course that you can take also inside the Fulcrum. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining. And uh, this is episode 15. We'll see you here in a couple of weeks with episode 16 and Stop Decorating the Fish. <laughs>